following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right. Good evening. It's a pleasure to have that hour or so of prayer together, giving thanks to God and knowing that He hears our prayers. What a blessing and an encouragement, confidence builder that is. And uh, this evening, in our, the remainder of our time, I'm going to encourage you uh, to follow along as we study God's Word in the book of Ezra. If you're joining us online right now, uh, we are picking up in our study that we have begun just uh, two uh, studies now on in the book of Ezra, first study being on some of the introductory material concerning the book of Ezra and the context around it. And then last time we focused on chapter 1, all 11 verses, and uh, I'll just draw your attention just for a moment to that chapter, chapter 1 in Ezra, and uh, specifically verses 2 through 4, which lay out the decree given by uh, Cyrus, who was king of Persia, uh, the king which had just taken, uh, taken over the Babylonian Empire, and uh, and now is dealing with the Israelite community, which is still uh, in Babylon because of the exile uh, that had taken place earlier on when Nebuchadnezzar had come through and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And in Ch- Ezra chapter 1, we find this decree given by King Cyrus after the Lord has stirred up his spirit, worked in him in a kind of supernatural divine way to uh, cause him to fulfill the words of Jeremiah, which, uh, who prophesied that after 70 years of being in exile, uh, the Lord would, would cause his servant, Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation that would allow the Jewish uh, community to return back to Jerusalem. And in verses 2 through 4, we find that uh, very proclamation that's given throughout all of King Cyrus's kingdom. And this is what this proclamation proclamation states in verse 2. It says, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever's left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Here then we find that proclamation. We also noted last time that we can also find it at the end of Second Chronicles in chapter 36, the very few last verses. Uh, Uh, recount that same proclamation. So we kind of just pick up the story here in Ezra as it uh, carries on. The rest of uh, chapter 1 includes um, just the the response of the people of Israel to this proclamation. We see in verse 5, it says, Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. We took a moment to consider uh, 
the kind of work that God did in those people's lives, a, a very uh, convicting work, uh, so that the people who decided to go back to Jerusalem were those who, who had a deep desire to be obedient to God's way of worshiping him, which included going back to rebuild a temple where proper worship of God could take place. Those are the kinds of people we see returning back to Jerusalem. We also saw in verse 7 that King Cyrus brought out the articles which had been stolen from the temple, uh, the last temple built by Solomon, uh, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the house of God, the temple, when he destroyed it uh, some 150 or or not quite that many years ago, but just prior to... uh, uh, to the exile there. And then um, we uh, pick up in chapter 2 this evening, and uh, we are going to cover the whole chapter, but don't worry, we're not going to read every single verse as we see it here. Uh, We're going to more or less summarize the majority of it, because as you look at chapter 2, if you let your eyes glance upon that chapter, you'll notice that much of it is uh, names and numbers. It's really a list of all those who uh, were to return to Judah, and specifically Jerusalem, uh, under this decree given by Cyrus. So we see the first 63 verses or so are just a list documenting the total number of people who were going to return. Now, um, let me say this. Uh, The first first two verses uh, contain particularly important names of those who would return. And let me read those first two verses for you. It says in verse 1 of chapter 2, Now these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity, of those who had been carried away whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon, who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. Now, verse 2 says, Those who came with Zerubbabel were uh, Jeshua, or Joshua, Nehemiah, uh, not the prophet who would return later, different Nehemiah, Sarariah, uh, Reeliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Bahana, the number of the men of the people of Israel. Then it also gives then uh, the preceding list of people and and the number of, uh, of people represented by that name. Now, the people in this list that we see then beginning in verse 2 all the way through 64 are the descendants of those who had been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar and brought to Babylon, probably those to the third or even fourth generation. The records specify uh, ten men who are the heads of the father's households of the Israelite community, uh, the elders, as it were, the great-grandfathers. And uh, those men, I I read there in verse 2, those were the elders, the respected men of the Israelite community there in Babylon who would return with Zerubbabel to head up the rebuilding of the temple of God. These were the respected men in the community and we, would, we will see later on in Ezra chapter 4, uh, verses 2 and 3. Let me just read that for you now. 
Uh, these men uh, would serve in an advisory role in the rebuilding of the temple. Ezra chapter 4, verse 2 reads and says this. Let me find my spot here. Um, verse 2, they came uh, to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses. That's who we're speaking of here, these, these respected elders of the Israelite community. Said to them, let us uh, build with you, for we seek God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esser Hadan, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So these are, the again, as we said, the elders, the respected men who were following Zerubbabel and would lead the people in the return to Jerusalem. Of course, we see Zerubbabel listed here as well in verse 2. And uh, he himself, being a descendant of David, was the appointed leader in the return to Jerusalem and would function as the governor of the people who returned. You can look at Haggai chapter 1 and uh, chapter 2, where we, he's exp- explicitly called out as the governor. Of course, last time we mentioned another man named Shesh Bazar, uh, who was also functioning as governor. There's some debate whether that's uh, maybe just another name for Zerubbabel, the same kind of person. Uh, I take it to be that actually this is a person who was appointed by uh, Cyrus to go back uh, with Zerubbabel and kind of govern in a political way over Judah, uh, but not, uh, not in the same way that Zerubbabel was appointed by the Jewish community, the Israelite community himself, and by God to serve uh, and, and help lead in the rebuilding of the temple. Now, uh, again, going back to then the names that we see listed, uh, beginning in verse uh, really three then, where we find numerous names now, and uh, uh, which represent a, a collective whole. Uh, let's, let, let me just uh, talk about that for a moment and what these names uh, resemble or uh, or the significance of them and who they represent. Now, uh, as you look at those verses, depending on your translation, it may read something like this, uh, specifically in verse, uh, the end of verse 2 and beginning in verse 3, the number of the men of the people of Israel, the people of Parash, and then uh, it says 2,172, and then the people of Shephatiah, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, if you have uh, the English Standard Version or even the NASB, your translation may say or does say the sons of Parash. You see the difference there? Uh, If you're reading from the New King James, it'll say the people of Parash. Uh, Other translations like ESV or NASB say the sons of Parash. And uh, what the New King James uh, translators have done is They've tipped their hat, so to speak, to what they believe the original authors meant when they say sons of Parash, because if you look at the Hebrew text, it actually uh, is trans- could be translated or should be translated as sons. But uh, as I just said, the translators have tipped their hat to what the meaning uh, of the original authors, what they meant to convey when they say, when they say sons. Now, in this case, uh, I think the New King James Version uh, and the translators have done a good job in this translation because what they've 
done is uh, they've eliminated, eliminated any potential confusion when you read sons. Now, what do I mean? Well, I think you could agree when, when I say sons, our minds immediately go to, uh, to, to the word which uh, describes a biological offspring. I am the son of my father, James Lorch. And that's where our minds immediately go. He's the son of, of, uh, of, of Matt Postiff. And that would be Daniel and, and John and, and David. However, as uh, the case in some lists of names, even including some genealogies, the author uses the phrase son of to refer to all of the descendants of a t- particular person, not just the immediate biological son. And that's exactly what's going on in our list here in Ezra chapter 2. When the author documents by saying the sons of Parash and so forth and so on with the rest of these names given here, uh, in Parash's 200 or 2,172 descendants, he is not referring to uh, that many biological sons, as if Parash... Uh, bore through his wife that many sons, you know, 2,000 sons. That's obviously ridiculous to think about. Rather, uh, rather he is speaking to a group of people that is represented by this forefather named Parash. He represents families or a clan in this community in Babylon who is choosing to return to Jerusalem with, with Zerubbabel. So, as we say, or as it's, we've noted, Parash did not bear that many descendants, meaning biological sons, but in a sense, he is the father of all of these descendants, and therefore, these descendants are his sons. So, uh, I want to bring, hopefully, that clarity to your mind this evening as as we uh, consider this list of names, these aren't biological immediate sons. Rather, these are figureheads. They are representatives of a larger family group or a clan, perhaps, uh, within a certain tribe, like the tribe of Judah or the tribe of, of Benjamin, so forth and so on. These names, like Parash, for example, the first one listed here in verse 3, would be used to identify which family group various members of the community belong to. And that was important. We even talked about that in our study of Ruth, that it was important to know uh, the clan to which you belong, the family group uh, within a tribe of Israel. It was important to be able to identify who your ancestors were so that you knew exactly which clan and tribe you belong to. And that's why uh, we find so many genealogies in the Old Testament and then also in the New Testament as well, when it comes to the genealogy of Jesus and uh, his right to the throne and, uh, and also uh, his lineage uh, through Mary as well and all that, that which we've studied before in, in some contexts. Now, uh, in some cases, people groups would be identified by a city in Judah as well. For instance, if you look... Uh, Let's see, where is it at? If you look down in verse 21 of chapter 2, it says the people of Bethlehem, 123. 
And then verse 22, the men of uh, Netophah, 56. I know I'm botching all of these names. I haven't gotten to my Hebrew yet. But some of these uh, are cities which are in Judah. And uh, for whatever the case may be, perhaps uh, uh, there was no figurehead to represent them. And all they knew that was that their, uh, their family, their heritage, their ancestors came from, in this instance, Bethlehem. And so uh, that name uh, was, in a sense, uh, the figurehead for them. They, that city was ascribed to their name to help them identify where they came from in Israel, which would, was important because that would say, uh, signify that they were from Israel. They were of Jewish descendant, descendancy. Now... Um, I'm not going to, again, read all these names that we find in these 63 or so verses. Um, what you really have here, I guess, is a, a 6th or 7th B.C. list of most popular baby names. And, um, and I'll let you read through those. We've, uh, we're doing our own kind of reading through long lists of names and pastors reading in First Chronicles. So we'll leave it, leave it to him to uh, cover lists of names. Yeah. <laughs> But it is interesting, nonetheless, I, I do encourage you to read through this at some point and, and look at the numbers. And uh, what I want to call out in this portion of our text this evening is the sum total of all of these, of these peoples being represented here. And we find, that, um, we find that number at the end here in verse um, 64. Look at verse 64 in Ezra chapter 2 says, the whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 men and women singers. So uh, this is a, a large number of people that would be returning with Zerubbabel in this first return. But I, I, I pose this question, which I don't really have a exact answer to, but uh, I wonder how many, uh, what percentage does that represent of all those Israelites who were in exile in Babylon? Let me say it another way. Let's uh, suppose that uh, some 100,000 or so were exiled to Babylon 70 years ago. This then would only represent 40% of those who perhaps were living in Babylon at this time, given that, you know, they were reproducing at a kind of normal rate. And maybe there were even more than that in Babylon now. Let's say there was 150,000 Israelites in Babylon, and now we see only 40% returning. Uh, Again, I'm kind of just surmising here, but uh, I I can say with confidence that I don't think or I know for a fact that not every Israelite returned back to Jerusalem in this first return. Remember what we said in chapter 1, it was all those who God did a work in their heart, who God moved to return, that actually did. We can surmise that there were some that were comfortable with where they were at. They had gotten adjusted to the Babylonian kind of lifestyle, and they were, uh, they were, you know, rooted in that community. 
And uh, now, like I said earlier, probably the third or fourth generation out since the exile. And perhaps they knew nothing else but then Babylonian life. And uh, I don't know for sure, but I'm sure some of them were uh, even ingrained in the religious lifestyle of the Babylonians and, and had no concern for returning and in, in helping in the rebuilding of the temple. It's kind of a sad thought to think about, but uh, most likely a true one, that this only represents a small margin of the actual Israelites in Babylon. Some just decided for one reason or another not to return. But uh, on a more encouraging note, there were at least 42,000 who were concerned with the things of God, that they returned to the promised land which God had given them and, and help in the rebuilding of the temple and also then be able to, to worship there as they were uh, commanded to in the law that they were given through God, that covenant relationship that they have with the Lord. Now, uh, another thing that I wanted to do as we consider this list of names was just call out some of the categories of people represented, represented here in this list. The first uh, kind of category of people we have is just various Israelite clans. And uh, we see that covered in the first, uh, well, verses 3 all the way through verse 35. And uh, these would be people that uh, weren't, uh, I don't want to say it, that they weren't important, but they were just from various clans, perhaps the, 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 um, from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and other tribes as well. But they weren't Levites. They weren't uh, servants of, of Israelites. They weren't uh, priests or gatekeepers like will be mentioned or singers. They were just various Israelite people who uh, God had worked in and uh, who would return with Zerubbabel. They were the men of Israel, as verse 2 puts it, the people of Israel. Then the second kind of category of people we find um, is beginning in verse 36. Look with me there. At the beginning of verse 36, it says, The priests, and then gives a list, the sons of Jedidiah, and so forth, and then uh, look at verse 40. We see the Levites represented here, another category of people. Verse 41, we see the singers. And then in verse 42, we see the sons of the gatekeepers. Now, I've kind of com- uh, collaborated all of these under the uh, subtitle of, of uh, kind of temple-related people, people who had a role in the temple worship. First, of course, priests being a prominent part of temple worship. The presence of priests uh, after the temple would be rebuilt was necessary for proper worship. They were given specific duties in the temple so that, uh, so that the people of God could participate in the worship of God there in the temple. Consider the vast number of priests who would be returning to Jerusalem. The total would be, uh, in this return, 4,289 priests. That is a large number uh, that would be returning and a very helpful number to be able to orchestrate all the responsibilities that would take place after the temple was rebuilt. Of course, Ezra himself was from the tribe of Levi and functioned as a priest 
Look with me for a moment at Ezra chapter 7, verse 11. Uh, just as a reference to this idea that Ezra is a priest, it says in verse 11 of chapter 7, this is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest, also a scribe, expert in the words of the commands of the Lord. Um, we also could look in Nehemiah chapter 8. I'll just read that for you. You don't have to turn there. You can stay in Ezra because we'll be right back there in a moment. But Ezra chapter 8, verse 4, it says this, So Ezra the scribe took on the platform of the wood which they made for the purpose, and beside him at his right hand stood uh, a number of men mentioned. Verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And uh, then we see here Ezra teaching the word. Verse 9, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and all the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, "This is the day. This is this day is holy to the Lord your God." And uh, and then they spoke the word of God from the law there. So we see Ezra himself functioned as a priest and a scribe, and his presence there later on, which we'll read about in Ezra chapter seven, uh, was important important for temple worship as well. Um. Later on, when we get to chapter 3 next time, we'll see that the priests who returned with Zerubbabel that are mentioned here in uh, verse 36 would perform sacrifices during the feasts of booths upon the newly built altar. And the Levites, who are mentioned uh, in verse 40, who were 20 years and upward, are appointed to supervise in the rebuilding of the temple. We see this in Ezra chapter 3, verse 9. It says um, there in verse 9, Ezra chapter 3, then uh, Jeshua, or Joshua, with his sons, um, oh, actually verse 8 is what I was looking for. It says there, uh, halfway through or so, the rest of their brethren and the priests and the Levites and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. That was the responsibility of the Levites upon their return to Jerusalem. We also see here in verse 41 then, the singers mentioned, these are the sons of Asaph. Asaph, if you remember that name, uh, where it comes from, he was one of David's chief musicians. And now the descendants of Asaph, Uh, would be returning to Jerusalem, and they would be appointed to serve in the temple with their musical abilities, lead in congregational worship. We see that uh, happening in in, uh, Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 22, also in Ezra chapter 3, which we'll look at next time. Then finally in verse 42, we see the gatekeepers mentioned, uh, and their role is exactly as it sounds. They were responsible to guard... uh, and uh, help facilitate at the entrances to uh, the temple courtyard there. And we see uh, more of that described and detailed in First Chronicles chapter 26. We're running out of time quickly, so let me just mention a few more of the categories, uh, not in too much detail, but just more as a reference. 
In, uh, in verse 43, we see this title of, or this category of people, the Nethanim. Now, who is that? Well, that is the Hebrew word for servant or slave. And so uh, the following list then are descendants of servants who had been taken captive along with their, um, their Israelite um, uh, people to which they served. And there's a long list of names there given, servants of, of the Israelites. This uh, large category of people returning to Jerusalem were descendants also of, uh, of temple servants who, who had served uh, alongside the priests in various manners prior to the captivity. They likely assisted the priests in their duties, also probably helped in other areas in the temple, perhaps cleaning and other responsibilities that took place in the temple prior to the captivity. One other uh, category mentioned in this section of servants or slaves is the section of the sons of Solomon's servants. We see that in verse 55. Glance there for a moment, Ezra 2:55. It says, the sons of Solomon's servants... You may wonder exactly who are these descendants. Well, if you remember back to 1 Kings chapter 9, there were a number of uh, national groups remaining in Israel who had not been completely eradicated. And so Solomon decides to take those that are left there, of uh, various foreign entities, and to, uh, and to force them to serve him in his extensive building projects, kind of a forced labor uh, uh, organization there that uh, I don't think we would condone today at all. It, wasn't it was not God's desire for him to do that. It's something we just see Solomon doing on it by himself in his own accord. And these now are the descendants of those people, these forced laborers under Solomon's uh, kingship that we read about back in 1 Kings 9. These would be uh, then non-Israelites that would be returning with the Israelites because, uh, of, as we just mentioned in 1 Kings 9, or referenced, uh, they were descendants of uh, nations that were not completely eradicated from, uh, from the, the land there which uh, the Israelites were dwelling Final category of people that we see here in this list is a number of what I call, uh, maybe this isn't a politically correct term uh, these days, but undocumented people, undocumented people or persons. We see this in 59 through 63. Look with me at verse 59. It says, And these were the ones who came up from Tel Mela, Tel Harsha, Cherub, uh, Adon and Emar, or Emer, and it says here in verse 59, these people, these, let me say this, these are cities being mentioned here that are in Babylon, cities that are in Babylon that uh, people uh, from these cities wanted to return with Zerubbabel to Jerusalem. It says here in verse 59, but they, these people that came up from these cities, could not identify their father's house or their genealogy, whether they were of Israel. And then uh, it gives the names of the, the heads of these houses who represent the number of people who wanted to return. 
as I just said, these are a list of families who came from cities in Babylon in which Israelite communities existed during the exile. But these people or these family groups were unable to pr- prove that they were descendants of a particular of a particular Israelite tribe or clan. They couldn't be found in the genealogies, and that's probably because these genealogical records had been either destroyed during the captivity of Judah when the city of Jerusalem was burned down, or perhaps these genealogies were lost sometime during their exile in Babylon. We don't know exactly the case, but whatever it may be, uh, whatever the case is, these records were lost, and uh, these particular families' uh, genealogical records specifically had been lost. And of this group of people, uh, we see some claimed to be descendants of Levi, but they had no documentation that could verify that they truly were of uh, Levitical descendancy. We see here in verse 61, it says, And the sons of the priests, the sons of uh, Habiah, and the sons of Kaz, the sons of Barzillai, and so forth. And so some of these uh, family groups were were uh, claimed that uh, they were descendants of Levi, but there was no gene- genealogical record to verify that this was true. And this created a problem since, as we know, the priesthood was reserved solely for the Levitical uh, tribe, those who were descendants of Levi. So uh, in order to uh, rectify this, this issue, we see in verse... Uh, 62, it says, these sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore, it was decided that they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. Verse 63, and the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things. Those are the things which were reserved for the priesthood. Till a priest could consult with the Urim or the Thummim. Now, uh, I don't know what your knowledge of those, uh, those things are that are referenced there. We could go back to Exodus 28 and Numbers 27 to find more detail. We won't do that this evening here. But uh, although we don't know the specifics about the Urim and the uh, Thummim, uh, we do know this, that they were some kind of, of a, a device or an attachment to the breastplate worn by the high priest. And it was used as this. It was a mode of acquiring special revelation from God. Again, we don't exactly know how this process took place. It's not something that we see continuing on. Uh, it had its kind of its own era in which it was used uh, by the priest. Uh, but we do know that it was used as a mode to acquire special revelation from God. And so the governor here we see in verse 30, uh, 63 is leaving it to the priest to consult uh, this, uh, this means of requiring revelation from God. And until then, uh, they uh, would not allow these people to uh, participate in the priesthood. They excluded them. And uh, you may, may think for a moment, well, that's kind of harsh. You know, they, they seem to, to check out okay. They make a claim to be part of the tribe of Levi, um, but what's really we see in this is that there was a high regard for the priesthood. They weren't about to allow anyone in just by word of mouth. 
but they wanted to make sure that this priesthood was reserved for those whom God had truly chosen to be a part of it, only those who were of the tribe of Levi. And so what they were doing is very much so honoring the priesthood and making sure uh, that no one who was outside of the house of Levi would participate in such holy things and in such uh, great responsibilities. God had set apart the Levites for this, for this responsibility, and no one else should or, or, or uh, could uh, honorably and biblically participate in that, those responsibilities. All right, uh, we are way over time here, so I'm going to leave the rest of, of chapter 2. We'll just touch on it next time before we get into chapter 3. Um, but I hope, although it's really just a list of names and numbers, it's allowed you to contemplate uh, the, the kinds or the categories of people who would return and the significance of their return. All of them would play a crucial part in the rebuilding of the temple, in reestablishing Jerusalem as a city, you need people to, to uh, have a city and to have a community. And God was using each one of these people in, own, in his own special way to, uh, to reestablish uh, his temple where God's people could worship in a way that was honoring to him through the priesthood and the Levites and all those who would serve there. Let's uh, pray as we close this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word, the way in which it has been recorded, Lord, and preserved for us today, until this day, Lord, and uh, we thank you that we have um, a record of how you have um, used various people, various times to uphold the worship of you. In, this, in that day and age, it was through temple worship, through God-fearing men and women who would follow obediently according to your will and to worship as you had prescribed them to, worship you in the ways. Lord, we, we consider our own responsibility how you have prescribed us to worship you today. It's not in a temple, but Lord... It is in a community of people, of believers, born-again brothers and sisters in Christ who gather to read your word and to worship you and sing praises to you. And we pray that we would be faithful, just as the folks mentioned here in our passage this evening were faithful to you in returning to Jerusalem to worship your name. We pray that we would be faithful in our responsibilities, in our tasks of pleasing you, and uh, in worshiping you in our own assembly that you have brought about here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. We thank you. We ask this, Lord, in your Son's name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For those who are online, may you have a good evening, and uh, we hope to have some fellowship with you soon. If you're here in person, we hope you'll have a little time of fellowship before you head your way this evening, and uh, may the Lord bless you as you go your way. And I look forward to joining with you again on Sunday or even sooner to uh, worship our Lord. Amen.